Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast, where we are dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, hoping that everyone had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. Whether that meant hanging with friends or family, or just relaxing for the day. As for myself, I used the day just to decompress, meaning I sat in front of the television all day, eating a lot of food. So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two programs featured tonight are the Black Museum and the Black Mass in honor of Black Friday. Now I'm going to make a disclaimer for the Black Museum. It really can't fall within the genre of horror or even suspense, but it was hosted and narrated by the great Orson Welles, so you can never go wrong there. And it was a very well-written and well-rounded radio crime drama with each episode being based on real-life cases from Scotland Yard, which I found very interesting. It was produced by Harry Allen Towers and it originated on the BBC in 1951. In 1952, it started broadcasting in the U.S. on the Mutual Channel during two separate intervals. The first was January 1st through June 24th. The second, September 30th to December 30th. On May 7th, 1953, it started broadcasting in Europe on the Radio Luxembourg. Now, I want to say the original run ended in 1953, but during my research, I was never able to actually find the actual date. But I did discover that from 1963 to 1964, it was rebroadcasted on the radio station KABC in L.A. And then in 1967, on the radio station KUAC in Fairbanks, Alaska. And it continued in syndication. And it continued in syndication throughout the 60s up until the 1990s um, on the NPR. As I stated before. It was hosted and narrated by the great Orson Welles. Now, tonight's radio play is entitled The Mandolin String, and it first was broadcasted on June 17, 1952. So you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the... No, you don't really need to turn down the lights for this one, but you still will be entertained. And um, enjoy The Mandolin String. speaking from London. The Black Museum, a repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard is a warehouse of homicide where everyday objects, a crumpled newspaper, a tin can of lighter fluid, a small radio, all are touched by murder. A mandolin string. Familiar object. I'm told, Inspector, that mandolins are mighty popular with young folk these days. Popular? Yes, they are. However, I'm rather happy to say their popularity is confined to music, not to murder. Today, this mandolin string can be found in the Black Museum. From the 
annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. <laughs> Starring Orson Welles. Well, here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Here lies death, arranged neatly on the shelves and tables open to your view. Now, here's a spoon. It's a simple household spoon. Our murderer was meticulous. With this, he measured out a careful dose of poison. That oar up there on the wall, that was used by the stroke of a famous rowing aid at Henley. Later, it was used in anger, swung at a man who stood on the edge of a pier, stunning him. The man drowned in the Thames very quickly. Ah, here we are, the mandolin string. Just a coil of rust-spotted wire now. String from a mandolin. A relic of another era. An era of polished carriages, well-groomed horses, simple, sedate living, Edwardian England, and Louise Evans. Louise, my dear. Stuart, darling, I'm playing for you. In more ways than one, she's playing for you, Stuart. Louise, you've got to listen. Go ahead, son. She'll listen. Just say the right words. Louise, I love you. you you're adorable. You're getting closer, Stuart. You're doing better now. Louise, my darling, will you marry me? At last. That's the way, Stuart. You see? I told you she was playing for you. <laughs> church organ, not Louise's mandolin, played them up the aisle at June. They were quite happy, quite domestic, particularly on the quiet winter evenings. You're looking very well tonight, Louise. Thank you, dear. Anything of interest in the newspaper, Stuart? No. Nothing you'd want to know about. Oh, Stuart, darling, mm -hmm. I wonder if you'd mind... Something you want, sweet? Well... Maisie's gone to her room. I hate to disturb her. Let me get it for you, whatever it is. Oh, thank you, dear. It's just that... Uh, yes? Well, you may think it's a little odd, but... Come well, now. I... Uh, I have this funny little desire for a, a glass of wine. <laughs> Don't apologize, darling. There's nothing wrong in a glass of wine. Is there any in the pantry? Well, no, dear, that's just it. A trip down to the cellar. Not another word. My pleasure is to serve you, my dear. <laughs> The husband gets up. He puts his newspaper aside and leaves the room where his pretty young wife sits by the fireside. Walks down the hallway to the cellar entrance, pausing on the way to pick up a candle from the table by the stairs. Lights the candle, opens the little doorway. The candle flickers, casting a fitful yellow light, darkening the shadows where its beams fail to penetrate. Stuart Mason starts down the stairs. Stuart! Stuart! Oh! Stuart, answer me! 
Shock, Mrs. Mason. I know. If you take a sleeping powder. Well, no, Doctor. No, it was my fault. My silly wish for a glass of wine. If I hadn't asked him. No, oh, Doctor, the least I can do is to face my grief. That's the least I can do for poor Stuart. If you wish, Mrs. Mason, I understand. Death is a terrible thing. When it comes so suddenly to one so young, it is most terrible of all. Yes, it is terrible. A broken neck, falling down the cellar stairs by flickering candlelight on a simple and hardly necessary errand. My dear, as a close friend of both your late husband and yourself, I feel justified in asking you to contain your grief. After all, you're young, and if I may say so, pretty. Nelson, you are sweet. I simply do not know how I would have lived through these long, long months without poor dear Stuart's friends, particularly you. This brings me to a point, my dear. I, I've meant to discuss it with you. I begin to feel something slightly more than respect for you, Louise, if I may take the liberty... Nelson, watch your words. Look out, Nelson. A pretty blonde widow with wide blue eyes, so delicate and fragile. Watch your step. Oh, my loneliness in this house. At night, the floors creak... They seem to try to speak with me. Maisie does her best, but it's still so... so... Well, you know. You're lonely too, aren't you? I must confess, Louise, that I am. Now see here, young lady. We're going to start a new life for you. Oh, Nelson. Uh, some cream for Mrs. Church, Maisie. Yes, madam. Oh, thank you. You know, Louise, this is the nicest idea. Having coffee with our men folk, I mean. I always hated the idea of the ladies withdrawing while the men had their port alone after dinner. Well, I, I can't say I mind when our hostess is as lovely a bride as Louise. Hey, Nelson, do you agree, old man? Of course I agree. After all, I married her. <laughs> How you men do go on. Don't they, Alice? Let them, dear. It's one of their pleasures. I have another pleasure I want to share with you, Alice. Friend? Yes, Nelson? Louise's absolute talent with the mandolin. Oh, Nelson, please. The mandolin, yes, I seem to remember you played very well, Louise. Oh, do, Louise, please. Well, uh, really, I... Well, my, my talent is so small. Oh. oh, we won't take no for an answer, darling. Here it is. Now, what shall your first selection be? <gasps> oh, dear. One of the strings is missing. Oh, missing? Well, uh, I, I was uh, uh, tuning it yesterday. Oh, one of the strings broke, and I didn't get downtown to buy a new one. Oh, I am sorry, truly I am. Uh, perhaps next time you're here. Too bad. Really too bad. We've been so nice. Recently married young lady with a gaily beribboned mandolin in her lap in a lamplit room. Would have been so nice. In fact, as they prepared for sleep... Nelson Carter said just that. Too bad about your mandolin string, dear. It would have been so nice to hear you play tonight. Ooh. What is it, dear? Oh, the sheets are icy. It must be really cold outside. Well, Fred Church said it was. And you are so susceptible to colds. Darling, we've got to have a hot water bottle. Well, ring for Maisie, why don't you? Well, she was exhausted, poor dear. She worked so hard cooking and serving dinner. It seems unfair to disturb her. All right, I'll get it. Do you know where it is? Mm, in the kitchen cabinet, dear. Uh, right in front. All right. I'd better take a candle. Uh, and use the back stairs, darling. It's shorter that way. Once again, a young man lights his way through a dark house toward a steep stairway by the flickering flame of a candle. Once again, a young man makes his way along a carpeted hallway, starts a hurried descent of wooden stairs. <laughs> Nelson! Nelson! What happened? All right, Maisie. Your mistress will rest now. 
I gave her a sedative. Oh, oh, poor woman. Oh, poor, poor child. Poor? This will be the second fortune she inherits. Hardly poor. Two accidents like that. Oh, Doctor, it's like the poor girl was a curse. Aye, it is. Well, things like this happen. As you say, two accidents and so much alike. I shall probably recommend that your mistress builds herself a new house with no cellar and all on one floor. Whatever for, sir? No stairs, my girl. No stairs for anyone to fall down and break his neck. Well, I'm on my way. No visitors allowed. No visitors. And no stairs in a new house. Well, perhaps. Certainly for another year at least the mandolin will be silent. I think that that may be counted upon. That and the widow's weeds and the tearful glances from wide blue eyes. Of course, there was one item that no one counted on. You uh, sent for me, Inspector. I did, Peck. What do you think of this? Uh, hmm. Anonymous, sir. Yes. Read it, will you? Uh, Inspector Higley, don't file this letter in the waste paper basket. Hmm. I am not writing it without due thought and consideration. I cannot let you have my name as yet. But think of this. Two young men of wealth and standing in the community have died via falls downstairs with broken necks as the consequences. Don't you think at least a perfunctory investigation is called for? Don't you think so? And it's signed... An anxious friend. Yes. Well, Sergeant? Well, someone with an education, really. Someone who hints he or she will come forward if we find anything. I cannot let you have my name yet. Yes, uh, I noticed that, sir. Well, Sergeant, wear your best suit tomorrow. You and I are going calling on a young widow in Oxford Street. I understand she plays the mandolin. Rather well, in fact. Rather well. Yes, she played rather well. And a string of that mandolin on which she played can be seen today in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with the Black Museum starring Orson Welles. continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Two young men dead with broken necks. Both cases certified. Accidental death. And then an anonymous letter. Inspector Higley and Sergeant Peck paid their call. In fact, they paid two calls. The first on... Dr. Lipton. I'm rather glad you dropped in, Inspector. I know there's been whispering. Two unfortunate accidents like this. It would lead to rumors. Rumors? I see. Such as... The usual thing, that Stuart Evans and Nelson Carter may have been uh, helped to fall down the stairs. You mean pushed? Mm, Something of the sort. And your opinion, Doctor? My opinion is certified on the death certificate, sir. Accidental deaths, both of them. I see. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad you're so certain. Yes, the good doctor appears quite certain. Nonetheless, Inspector Higley and Sergeant Peck made their second visit. Oh, I'm so glad you came to see me, Inspector. Thank you. It's not too often that the police are welcome. 
Oh, I... I suppose not. But... Well, I... I can't help hearing about the things that people are saying. Maisie brings home so many odd tales. I was wondering, Mrs... <gasps> Sergeant, interested in music? Uh, quite a good-looking instrument, ma'am. Hmm. I shall never play it again. Oh? Why not? Both Nelson and Stuart loved the music. I... I cannot get over the fact that I took a mean excuse and refused to play the night that... that Nelson died. Oh? An excuse? Yes. You see, the churches, Alice and Fred, were here. I see. Nelson was pressing me to play. I, I refused. Mm -hmm. I, I used a missing string as an excuse when I had a stock of strings on hand and could have replaced the missing one. I refused Nelson that last pleasure. Tell me, do you always keep a stock of mandolin strings on hand, ma'am? Yes, in the cold weather I do. I see. When the temperature drops, the strings seem to get brittle. Quite. Uh, they break quite easily. And uh, where do you buy your mandolin strings, Mrs. Carter? At Murchison's music shop on the high street. Oh, Inspector. Yes? Sergeant, I appeal to you as men of the world. Can't you help me scotch these dreadful things that people are saying? Can you? Would you? Please. The inspector and the sergeant said they'd try, and they did. Their business was facts. One fact turned up immediately upon their contact with Mr. Murchison at the music shop on High Street. He showed me the bill of sale, inspector. Uh-huh. She bought the strings, sent the maid for him with a written order three days after this Carter fellow was buried. Hmm. Interesting. Now, why would a woman who says she had a stock of strings on hand the night her husband died, and says further that she'll never play again, buy mandolin strings shortly after the funeral? An interesting contradiction in dates and actions. A further interesting contradiction came to light some three months later. Another of those anonymous letters, Sergeant. Just, she's playing that mandolin again. I seem to remember, Sergeant, that Mrs. Carter told us she'd never touched the instrument again. Such contradictory behavior seemed to indicate another call. The inspector dropped in on Louise Evans Carter to a mandolin. Inspector Higley, how nice. All right, Maisie. Yes, madam. Uh, Inspector, uh, my friend Clifford West. How do you do, sir? Inspector, I'm afraid you've caught me in a fib. Is that very bad? A fib? Well, it couldn't be bad. Not from you, Louise. I don't quite follow, Mrs. Carter. <laughs> I told you some time ago I'd never play my mandolin again. And you've heard me playing. Yes, so you did. And so I have. But there must be a good reason, I assume. Oh, but there is. You tell him, Clifford, dear. As it happens, so we are both very, very happy. And music seemed extremely apropos. You see, sir... Mrs. Carter, Louise, has just done me the honor to consent to be my wife. Number three. The inspector sensed the tension in Midhaven. He waited. All of Midhaven seemed to be waiting with him. The first action came from an unexpected quarter. Inspector Higley, I demand you trace this letter for me at once. May I see your letter, sir? Here. I see. Mr. West, two men have died with broken necks. Are you the third? Are you entering the den of the tigress? Tracing a letter like this is not the easiest... There was no question in the inspector's mind that the author of Clifford West's letter was the same party who'd written the two notes addressed to the inspector himself. A brief comparison of the handwriting removed what little doubt the inspector had. And Sergeant Peck dropped in on the small Midhaven post office. this your postmark? That's right, sir. Of course it is. Ever see this envelope before? Well, maybe. Maybe not. Seen hundreds like it. You can buy that cheap kind in any stationery shop in Midhaven. Blank, Inspector. Nothing. Uh, I expected as much. Do you think that West fellow will be scared off, sir? I doubt it. Sergeant, take this copy over to the Midhaven Gazette, will you? I want it run in every edition for a week. Uh. Think you'll get an answer, sir? Well, remember the first letter. I cannot let you have my name as yet. Uh-huh. Uh, perhaps the party concerned will feel now is the time to reveal himself, or herself, as the case may be. That promise of absolute privacy may do the trick. 
I saw your advertisement, Inspector. I came. I hope you can protect me if I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I sincerely do hope so. Your confidence will be respected, Mrs. Church. Thank you, sir. I... I trust you don't feel there's any jealousy involved of any kind. My job is facts, ma'am. Do you have any? I don't know. You see, Stuart and Nelson both were young men of whom my husband and I were very fond. Uh-huh. And I... Well, I remember so distinctly how disturbed Louise seemed when we asked her to play that night. She seemed upset over our discovery of the missing string on that mandolin. I... Uh, I guess that's all, Inspector. It's not very much, is it? No. No, it's not. But it seems so peculiar. And the mandolin. Always that mandolin. Inspector, how could a mandolin be used to kill anyone? I don't know yet, even if anyone was killed. However, I'd like to find out. Mrs. Church, have you any idea of Mrs. Carter's social engagements? I mean, when, for instance, is she probably out of her house for a length of time? You can advise us as to any such matter. It seems Mrs. Carter attended the ladies' auxiliary of the local church each Wednesday afternoon, an activity a respectable young widow would be expected to enjoy. And it was Wednesday afternoon when the inspector and the sergeant called. The mistress isn't in, sir. I doubt if she'll be too long. May we wait? If you wish to, sir. The inspector went into the sitting room. Sergeant drifted toward the kitchen. Maisie, safely occupied by the good sergeant, Inspector Higley, swiftly found the cellar stairs, carefully moved down, examining each step, each lift and tread, each section of the baseboard. Halfway down. Well, interesting to say the least. Upstairs now to the back stairway. Again, the careful examination. Again, about halfway down. They'll do it every time. Every single time. Then quietly into the kitchen. Sergeant? Uh, yes, sir? I don't think we'll wait any longer. I'm sorry, sir. The mistress went along to the vestry and she ought to be... Oh, that's all right. Just tell her we called, will you? Come along, Sergeant. We'll drop back another time. And the two policemen left the house to return to the inspector's office. It's something, Sergeant. Not much, but something. It convinces me, sir. And me. But how about a jury? I don't know, sir. Of course, if we had a bit more, the, the nails themselves, sir. And then, yes. And then there's the business of buying that stock of mandolin strings. Sergeant, uh, we'll drop in on Mrs. Carter this evening. Do you by any chance play the mandolin? It was nice of you to come back so soon, Inspector. I I do hope you've been able to help me with all that mean whispering I told you about. I wish we could, ma'am. I wish we could. Did I tell you that Sergeant Peck is interested in the mandolin? Why, no, you didn't. Uh, may I, ma'am? Well, certainly. Yes, a lovely tone, ma'am. Yes, it has. Quite a romantic instrument, I believe. It goes back to the troubadours in France, centuries ago. Yes, I've heard. It certainly had its place in your life, Mrs. Carter. Yes, I... I dare say it has. I've been wondering about something, Mrs. Carter. I hope you can help me. Well, if I can, I will, of course. We uh, checked with Mr. Murchison at his music shop. Oh? Yes, he tells us you purchased a stock of strings shortly after Mr. Carter's death, not just before, as you told us. Well, then, I, then I, I, I'd, I'd forgotten the exact well, date. It seems rather peculiar that you should forget that after you made such a point of it to us. Well, I, I was under a terrible strain. I'm sure... <laughs> If you'd stop plucking that A-string, Sergeant, my nerves are... Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, ma'am. I, I didn't mean to break it. I'll get you a new one. Uh, that, that won't be necessary, Sergeant. I, I have extras right here in this drawer. Uh, that was the A-string, wasn't it? I'm rather surprised, Mrs. Carter. A woman of your obvious means keeping nails and bent ones at that in a drawer of a desk in her sitting I room. I forgot to throw them away. Yes, I dare say you did. May I have them, please? Uh, You'll leave them alone. I dare say also that they'll fit exactly into certain holes in the baseboards of your cellar and back stairs, just above the steps where someone unsuspecting would trip over tightly stretched mandolin strings stretched between two nails, like these, Mrs. Carter. You're taken in charge, madam. The charge is willful murder of your two husbands. I must warn you that anything you may say may be taken down in... And so, once and for all, the mandolin string was silenced can be seen today in the Black Museum. 
Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. Evans Mason Carter was tried for murder. The police stated facts and produced evidence. But Louise wept and lifted those blue eyes of hers to heaven, and the jury disagreed, and she was not convicted. Not in court. She was convicted by her neighbors and by her friends. They knew. And so Louise Evans Mason Carter moved away, far north, Scotland alone. And there she died some 20 years later, still alone. And now, until next time, till we meet in this same place and I tell you another story of the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. Museum starring Orson Welles is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. Okay, granted, this wouldn't be considered as terrifying or even suspenseful, but it's still entertaining nevertheless, and I stand by that. Now, our second program is The Black Mass, and this is um, the second time I featured this program, the first being on um, my episode, Don't Close Your Eyes. So for a quick recap, The Black Mass was a horror fantasy radio show based out of Berkeley and L.A., which ran from 1963 to 1966. And about 95% of its content were adaptations from various um, classical authors. Now, tonight's radio play is entitled The Ash Tree. And this was a short story written by M.R. James. And it was first broadcasted on December 18th, 1963. So, this time, sit back, definitely turn on the lights for this one. And listen to The Ash Tree.
everyone who has travelled over eastern England knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded. The rather dank buildings, usually in the Italian style, surrounded with parks of some 80 to 100 acres. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house. It is Castringham Hall in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story. One feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree growing within half a dozen yards of the wall and almost or quite touching the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place. At any rate, it had well nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year, the district in which the house is situated was the scene of a number of witch trials. Castringham contributed a victim to the extortions. Mrs. Mothersoul was her name. And she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. Efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew fell. Sir Matthew, will you tell the court, please, what you saw regarding Mrs. Mothersole on the evenings that you mentioned? Well, on three different occasions from my window, I watched her, uh, uh, Mrs. Mothersole, at the full of the moon, gathering sprigs from the ash tree near my house. Uh, she had climbed into the branches and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife. And uh, as she did so, she seemed to be talking to herself. Uh, on each occasion, I, I did my best to capture the woman, but she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise I had made. Uh, all I could see when I got down to the garden was a hare running across the path in the direction of the village. Um, on the third night, I followed her at what speed I could. I went straight to Mrs. Mothersole's house. I had to wait a quarter of an hour battering at her door, and when she came out, she was very cross and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed. And as I had no good explanation to offer, I had to apologize, rather embarrassingly. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Mrs. Mothersole was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial with five or six more unhappy creatures. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery. But Mrs. Mothersole was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Oh, her poisonous rage did so work upon the bystanders, yea, even upon the hangman, that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the very living aspect of a mad devil. Uh, yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law, only she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and venomous an aspect. Aye, aye, the mere thought of it preyed inwardly upon my mind for six months after. However... All that Mrs. Mothersole is reported to have said was seemingly meaningless words. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew. There will be guests at the hall.
Sir Matthew Fell, then Deputy Sheriff, was present at the execution and was not unimpressed at the bearing of the woman. He shared certain misgivings over the whole business with the vicar of his parish as they rode from the scene of the gallows. I'll say it again, Mr. Crome. My evidence at the trial was not given willingly. I'm not at all specially infected with the witch-finding mania, but I declare that I could not give any other account of the matter than, than what I had given, and I could not possibly have been mistaken in what I saw. Ah, but the whole transaction has been repugnant to me. Now, I am a man who likes to be on pleasant terms with those about me. Yes, those are my sentiments, Mr. Crone. And the good vicar applauded them, as any reasonable man would have done, and was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. When Mr. Crome thought of starting for home about half-past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a turn on the gravelled walk at the back of the house. They were in sight of the ash tree, which I described as growing near the windows of the building. When Sir Matthew stopped, uh, Mr. Crome, uh, look there a moment. Where, Sir Matthew? Um, at the ash tree there. Uh, look, what is that that runs up and down the trunk of it? It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now. Ah, oh, yes, I see some sort of, of moving creature. Uh, what can you make of it, Mr. Crome? Nothing of its colour in this moonlight, Sir Matthew. Ah, but now it's gone. Uh, was it a squirrel? Oh, well, for an instant there was a sharp outline. And I could swear, though it sounds foolish, that squirrel or not, uh, it had more than four legs. Aye, more than four legs, Sir Matthew. <laughs> Next day, Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven, nor yet at eight. Hereupon, the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. When the door was at last opened from the outside, they found their master dead and black. Mr. Crome came as quickly as he could to the hall and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. Many years later, Mr. Crome's notes regarding this incident were found among his papers. They showed how genuine a respect and sorrow he felt for Sir Matthew, and they also threw some light upon the common beliefs of the time. There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber, but the casement stood open as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel of about a pint measure, and tonight had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Berry, Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterward declared upon his oath before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of a venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbours of poison. The body was very much disordered as it lay in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable a conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what is as yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful design in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder, was this, that the women which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing it, being both sad persons and very well respected in their mournful profession, came to me in great pain and distress, both of mind and body, 
saying what was indeed confirmed upon the first view. We had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with our naked hands than we felt a violent smart and aching in our palms. I am the swelling, oh, the swelling from the palms to the elbows so immoderately, the pain still continuing that for many weeks afterwards we were forced to lay by the exercise of our calling. And yet no mark to be seen on the skin. No mark seen on the skin. Upon hearing this, I sent for the physician, and we made as careful a proof as we were able, by the help of a small magnifying lens, of the condition of the skin on this part of the body. But we could not detect any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced, remembering that ring of Pope Borgia with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. So much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse. As to what I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of value therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size in which my friend used nightly and upon his first rising to read a set portion. And I taking it up, not without a tear duly paid to him, it came into my thoughts to make trial of that old and by many accounted superstitious practice of drawing the swords. I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me. Yet, as the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be searched out, I set down the results. In the case it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence than my own. I made then three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first uh, these words from St. Luke, um, chapter 13, uh, verse 7. Cut it down. Cut it down. And in the second, uh, um, Isaiah, uh, chapter 13, uh, verse 20. It shall never be inhabited. It shall never be inhabited. And upon the third experiment, uh, Job, uh, chapter 39, uh, verse 30. Her young ones also suck up blood. Her young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crome's paper. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth. His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates. It is to be mentioned, though the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died, nor, indeed, was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735, and I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase as time went on. The second Sir Matthew was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. 
so large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Mrs. Mothersole. A certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed. And the feeling of surprise, and indeed disquiet, was very strong when it was found that though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside of it of body, bones, or dust. One morning, it was in 1754, Sir Richard woke after a night of discomfort. Mrs. Chiddock, I can certainly not sleep in that room again. Oh, sir? The chimney smoked persistently, and yet it was so cold that the fire had to be kept up. Furthermore, something had so rattled about the window in the wind that no man could get a moment's peace. No, I'll certainly not sleep in that room again, Mrs. Chiddock. I shall select a new room this morning. As you say, sir. There's the fine large study across the hall, if I may suggest. Uh, no. No, it has an eastern aspect. I must have a room with a western lookout, so that the sun does not wake me early. And the room must be out of the way. I don't want servants forever passing the door. Well, Sir Richard, you know there is but one room like that in the house. Oh? Which may that be? Why, sir, that is Sir Matthew's room, the west chamber. Well, put me in there. I lie there tonight. But no one has slept there these 40 years. The air has hardly been changed since Sir Matthew died there. Well, then it's time the air be changed. Come along, Mrs. Chiddock. I'll see the chamber at least. So it was opened. And indeed, the smell was very close and earthy. Sir Richard crossed to the window, threw the shutters back, and flung open the casement. The view was almost entirely blocked off by the ash tree. Oh, sir, the tree. It makes the room so oppressive, so dampish, sir. Well, we'll shortly take care of that. Air the room, Mrs. Chiddock, all today, and move my bed furniture in in the afternoon. When the Bishop of Kilmore arrives, you can put him in my old room. But, sir... There's a fearfulness about this room. It's the very room... Yes, yes, it is here my grandfather died. Make no difficulties about it, Mrs. Chiddock. I do not wish to listen to any more. Be about the airing. Be about the airing. In the afternoon, the Bishop of Kilmore arrived. He had risked the approaching storm in order to have an hour with Sir Richard before the arrival of the other guests. The bishop had brought with them a manuscript, come upon while exploring the papers and other remains of the once vicar of Castringham. And, for the first time, Sir Richard was confronted with the enigmatical sortes biblicae of Mr. Crome, which you have already heard. They amused him a great deal. Well, my grandfather's Bible gave one prudent piece of advice, cut it down. If that stands for the ash tree, may rest assured I shall not neglect it. Such a nest of catars and agues was never seen. I was wondering, sir, uh, your parlour here contains the family books. Ah, yes, I wonder whether the old prophet is there yet. Now, let's see. Um, the Bibles are kept over here. And I know the one, the thick, dumpy... Ah, yes, here it is. Look here. Look here, sure enough, the inscriptions, the inscriptions on the flyleaf. To Matthew Fell, from his loving godmother, Anne Aldis. Hmm. The 2nd of September, 1659. Well, well, your lordship, it would be no bad plan to test him again, eh? I'll wager we'll get several family names from the Chronicles. Uh, uh, let's see now. Uh, see what? Do we have here? Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. 
Later came the other guests. Dinner at five, wine, cards, supper, and dispersal to bed. Next morning, Sir Richard is disinclined to take his gun with the rest. He talks instead with the Bishop of Kilmore. As the two were walking along the terrace and talking over certain alterations and improvements for the house, the Bishop suddenly pointed to the window of the West Room. Uh, you could never get one of my Irish flock to occupy that room, Sir Richard. Ah? Why is that, my lord? It is, in fact, my own room. Uh, well, our Irish peasantry will always have it that it brings the worst of luck to sleep near an ash tree. And your fine growth of ash is not two yards from your chamber window. Perhaps it has given you a touch of its quality already. You do not seem, if I may say it, so much the fresher for your night's rest as your friends would like to see you. Yes, that or something else it has true cost me my sleep from twelve to four, my lord. Ah, but the tree is to come down tomorrow, so I shall not hear much more from it. Ah, I applaud your determination. It can hardly be wholesome to have the air you breathe, strained as it were, through all that leafage. Your lordship is right there, I think. But I had not my window open last night. It was rather the noise that went on, no doubt from the twigs sweeping the glass that kept me open-eyed. Oh, I, I think that can hardly be Sir Richard. Here, uh, you, you can see it from this point. None of those nearest branches can touch a casement. Unless there were a gale and there was none of that last night. Or they missed the panes by a foot. No such truth. What then will it be, I wonder, that scratched and rustled so? Aye, and cover the dust on my sill uh, with lines and marks. Ah, oh, well, sir, uh, uh, might it be uh, the rats? The rats that must have come up through the ivy. Of course, of course, the rats. I it was the rats. So the day passed quietly, and night came, and the party dispersed to their rooms, and wished Sir Richard a better night. And now we are in his bedroom, with the light out and the squire in bed. The night outside is still and warm, so the window stands open. There is very little light about the bedstead, but there is a strange movement there. It seems as if Sir Richard were moving his head, rapidly, to and fro, with only the slightest possible sound. And now you would guess, so deceptive is the half-darkness, that he had several heads, round and brownish, which moved back and forward, even as low as his chest. It is a horrible illusion. Is it nothing more? Ah, there, something drops off the bed with a soft plump, like a kitten and is out of the window in a flash. Another. Four of them. And after that, there is quiet again. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. As with Sir Matthew, so with Sir Richard, dead and black in his bed. A pale and silent party of guests and servants gathered under the window when the news was known. Ominous guesses were hazarded. Italian poisoners, popish emissaries, infected the air. But the Bishop of Kilmore looked up at the ash tree. He noticed that a white tomcat was crouching in the lower boughs, looking down the hollow which years had gnawed in the trunk. It was watching something inside the tree with great interest. Suddenly it got up and crammed over the hole. 
Oh, well now, Kitty, what do you see there, inside the ash? Oh, careful, careful of the edge there. Careful now. But the bit of edge on which it stood gave way, and the cat went slithering in. Everyone looked up at the noise of the fall. It is known to most of us that a cat can cry, but few of us have heard, I hope, such a yell as came out of the trunk of the great ash. Two or three screams there were, and then the slight and muffled noise of some commotion or struggling was all that came. But Lady Mary Harvey fainted outright, and the housekeeper stopped her ears and fled till she fell on the terrace. The Bishop of Kilmore and Sir William Kentfield stayed. There is something more than we know of in that tree, my lord. I'm for an instant search. I agree with you there, Sir William. We must get to the bottom of this. The secret of these terrible deaths is there, in the ash tree. A ladder was brought, and one of the gardeners went up, and looking down the hollow could detect nothing but a few dim indications of something moving. They got a lantern, and the gardener let it down by a rope cautiously. They saw the yellow light upon his face as he bent over, and suddenly the face became struck with an incredulous terror and loathing. Oh. He fell back from the ladder, letting the lantern fall inside the tree. Oh, quick, Sir William, catch the man. Oh, what has he seen? What has he seen? He's in a dead faint, my lord. It will be some time, I fear, before any word can be got from him. Oh, oh, but, but look to the tree. Look to the tree, my lord. It's aflame. The bystanders made a ring at some yard's distance, and Sir William and the bishop sent men to get what weapons and tools they could, for clearly whatever might be using the tree as its lair would be forced out by the fire. And so it was. First, at the fork, we saw a round body, covered with fire the size of a man's head, appear very suddenly then uh, seemed to collapse and fall back. Uh, this five or six times. Uh, then a smaller ball leapt into the air and fell on the grass, where after a moment uh, it lay still. Uh, we went as near as we dared to it. And saw. Look, your lordship, it's an enormous spider. The remains, venous and seared, of an enormous spider. And as the fire burned, more terrible bodies like that began to break out from the trunk. And it was seen that these were covered with greyish hair. There will be guests at the hall. There will be guests at Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew. There will be guests all that day the ash burned, and until it fell to pieces the men stood about it and from time to time killed the brutes as they darted out. Uh, at last there was a long interval when none appeared, and we cautiously moved in and examined the roots of the tree. We found below it a rounded, hollow place in the earth, wherein were two or three bodies of these creatures that had been plainly smothered by the smoke. And what is to me more curious, at the side of this den, against the wall, was crouching the anatomy or skeleton of a human being with the skin dried upon the bones, having some remains of black hair. It was pronounced by those that later examined it to be undoubtedly the body of a woman, and clearly dead for a period of fifty years.
That's our show for this evening. I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, if you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror1970 or look for me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. Again, this is Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, signing off.